podcast has bad words. <laughs> All right, Josh, let's start this off with an argument about Missoula, Montana. <laughs> we're, we're, here with, uh, we're here with Chris Ryan. He is the author of Civilized to Death, also Sex of Dom, but his new book is Civilized to Death, and I strongly encourage you to check it out. We've got some questions. I want to talk about some stuff in the book today, but first we should talk about ambition in Missoula, Montana. Yes, let's talk about it. So one of the things about Missoula that uh, started to, to kind of drive me crazy about the place is a total lack of ambition there. Okay. Um, where, where I feel like, and, and and this is my own neuroses, so mm. I'm interested to hear, cause I think Chris has a, wildly different opinion uh, than I do on on these kinds of things mm-hmm. um, where I just I see people who are who are contented with mediocrity hmm um, you know the example is I know someone who is a world-class fisherman like yeah. and, and could certainly make his full-time living from fishing and, and doing guide work and stuff but won't take a few steps to like start an LLC and like I don't know, do a little bit of marketing, and so instead he's effectively a a, a bag boy at Target or yeah. a stock boy at Target. But maybe that mediocrity though is maybe it's perspectival because I know people in Missoula who intentionally don't try and put a bunch of things on their plate because they want to enjoy nature, they want to enjoy community, and they don't want to have to be bogged down with well i mean going with the llc or a corporation with all of the hassles that come along with starting your own business you've been to missoula montana yeah a few times how do you feel about it you feel like it's like a super lazy town or i didn't say lazy i said lacks ambition okay okay well i yeah i mean well i i never lived there i just you know passed through on the anthropology trips yeah Uh, it's one of the stops actually first year was to see you Yeah, 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 yeah 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 um last time any first impressions well, the last time I was there, I, I stopped and uh, interviewed a guy named Jeff Shapiro for my podcast. Mm-hmm. He's uh, one of those dudes who flies in wingsuits. Yeah. Uh, he's super hardcore. He has a falcon. He's a really interesting <laughs> dude. That's what I want to be. I want to have a life where I own a falcon. Yeah. <laughs> and like fly with it. <laughs> right. Know? Oh, that's yeah. incredible. Um, but you know what you were saying, Josh, reminded me of this conversation because, you know, I lived in Spain for 20 some years, right? And the Spanish approach to life is more like what you're describing. Mm-hmm. Like you you work to live. You don't live to work. Right. right? Absolutely. I remember having this conversation with Dr. Rubio, who was an oncologist. I taught English too. Uh, for a while and when I say taught English what I mean is that twice a week I would go to his office in the hospital he'd tell everyone okay my English teacher's here don't bother me for an hour no calls he'd lock his office door open the window and light up a cigarette (laughs) and we'd sit there and talk in Spanish for an hour I was just an excuse for him to take a break very Spanish approach to life he had no interest in learning English but I remember him saying to me uh we were talking about the difference between American culture and Spanish culture, and he said, look, the, the difference from my perspective is you Americans have no sense of the ridiculous. Mm. Mm. So like there's no, you're unconstrained by shame. And so Jimi Hendrix could only be American. No Spanish dude is gonna say, yeah, I wanna play guitar, but I'm left-handed, so I'm gonna restring it and play out of time and do whatever the hell I want and play it with my tongue. Like, that's not going to happen in Spain. Right. But also, there will never be a Spanish Ronald Reagan with his example at the time. Now I'm sure he'd 
use Trump, you know, <laughs> right? Um, because there's there's just something in America that's like go for it, right? Yeah. Um, and what you're describing sounds more like Spain, like that guy. You see, the thing is, you said he was a world class fisherman, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so he's not mediocre, right? No, he's excellent. Yeah, right. But he doesn't want to arrange his life around that thing that he takes so much pleasure in. That's where I disagree. I think he does. I just Uh, think he's not willing to do what it takes to do it. And that's what I mean by lack of... At that point, it's speculation, though. But maybe he is. Maybe he doesn't want to. No, he does. (laughs) Would would he spend more time fishing if he did that? Or would he spend less time fishing? He would spend more time. You think so? For Uh, sure. Yeah. Because there is that thing about follow your bliss, and if you do what you love, you'll never work. But also, if you're doing what you love for a living... It can kill the bliss. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I used to love writing until I had deadlines. Right. And and now I don't like it so much. Yeah. I I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. We're we're working on another book Well, it's funny, because what I was saying during the regular podcast is I feel like it was too much ambition. Because everyone I knew in Missoula, every single person I knew in Missoula... They had like their nine to five, Mm -hmm. but then they had their side hustle. And I have never seen more creation, more culture per capita than any other city. Like when it it comes to performing arts specifically, I have never seen uh, a higher, uh, a city with higher production. Um, I mean, maybe with Los Angeles because Hollywood is out here. And like it's kind of you know it's like the place for production, yeah. but, but it's too much ambition in Hollywood. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not recommending yeah. that level of, of. I mean, there is a toxic ambition yeah. in a place like Hollywood. But right. I think ambition it, for what? I guess is the question. Right. 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 Yeah. That's good. so. Yeah. So when you yeah actually yeah, expound on what when you say ambition, like what what would you like to see? more in missoula or what what do you feel like you lacked in missoula i see i agree with you we're, we're using these words differently w- what you're talking about is creativity and i agree that there is a lot of creative creativity more so there's creative potential in yeah. missoula there are a lot of creative people who don't live up to their pot- potential uh whether it's this this fisherman i'm talking about or w- you and i know authors and and playwrights and and people like that from missoula mm. who have potential to do truly great things that will make a difference in the world sure. it, uh, at scale that will impact a lot of people's lives, I feel like. Mm-hmm. And there is a unwillingness to put in the effort to actually see those ambitions It's, it's crazy, through. though, because I can think of people like uh, Hank Green, who is like one of the most famous YouTubers. He's not from Missoula, though. He moved there. R- Okay, I, I think a, I think the majority, not the majority, but a lot of Missoulians are transplants. So you're, so now we're talking about something completely different too. We're talking about people born and raised in Missoula. No, you, you're ver- talking about one er, example versus someone. Oh, but, but but he's just one of many examples. I mean, the gentleman that Chris interviewed, mm-hmm. very ambitious dude. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I guess what it comes down to is this, man: is like it, it, there's no right or wrong for. There's no umbrella of right or wrong for Missoula or Los Angeles for that matter. No, I'm not saying it's right or wrong to be ambitious or not ambitious. I don't think someone, this Jeff guy who sounds amazing, doesn't doesn't sound ambitious to me at all. Um, hmm. And I, 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 whether or not that's a good or bad thing, I'm just saying there's a lack of ambition there. Maybe that's actually a good yeah. thing. But even, yeah. Well, yeah, again, I guess, let's get down ambitious for what? Right. Right? Like, yeah. if, if you're ambitious to have a high quality life, mm-hmm. that may mm. or may not involve setting up an LLC. Yeah. Amen. Right? I mean, it reminds me of that, that parable about the Mexican fisherman 
You know, you yeah. guys have heard that, yeah. right? right? It's like, why don't you set up a business and hire more boats and run around? And yeah. then the guy's like, then I wouldn't have time to hang out and fish, you know? Right, right. So there <laughs> is the question of, and, and this sort of gets back to civilized to death, right? Like, through all this advancement and, and, uh, progress are we actually getting further away from the things that make life fulfilling mm. I, I argue that we are yeah and, and we I'd have for you. thousands of years yeah. so I'm super as you said at the beginning my take on ambition is pretty different from yours I'm very suspicious of ambition right but you're still an ambitious person you, you, someone can't... I'm ambitious to have a good life right that's uh, all that's not true I, I and, and here's why <laughs> here's why uh, you, you a person cannot write a book like Civilized to Death, which, I mean, I think is, uh, it's too early for me to say, well, this is going to be a masterpiece. I think we look back 10 years from now and say, wow, look at this. Yeah. Th this guy wrote a masterpiece of a book. In it seven years. It comes down. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> even deadline more so was six years ago. <laughs> I, I, I don't doubt that. I don't doubt that. But that even, that, that. That adds to my argument even more that you were willing to spend seven years to put together a book, and a non a non ambitious person is not going to be able. A, a non ambitious to do that. person wouldn't learn how to put on a wingsuit and fly with a falcon. Like that takes a lot of ambition to get to that level of skill. Not only is he in a wingsuit. But he has a falcon buddy that he has trained <laughs> to fly with him. Yeah, like, so, so we're we're using the words differently. I, yeah. When I say ambition, I, I'm talking about things that serve. The, the, let me let's finish yeah, here. Yeah, sure. uh, things that serve the greater good, and what you've mm. created with this book will serve the greater good in a way that flying around in a wingsuit doesn't. It doesn't I, mean that yeah. it's better or worse necessarily. When I talk about ambition, I'm talking about you. Yesterday, uh, we, we were um, actually this episode won't be out for several weeks now, but uh, or the one that we recorded yesterday. But um, we were talking about businesses, right? And mm -hmm. and good businesses make money. Great businesses make a difference. Sure, mm -hmm. it was sort of the the aphorism that we came up with. Mm -hmm. And and I think what you did was you created something that truly will make a difference in the world for many people. And I can't say that about the the wingsuit guy, although what he's doing, I'm sure, is plenty fun. I can't even exp like express how inspiring the vision of this dude is for me, mm. like just for humanity and what we're capable of. So... Again, I think ambition is yeah. I, I think we're just using the word differently. Yeah, but, but what what vision though? You wouldn't know about it unless there was an ambitious person who amplified his message. That's that's not necessarily true. Yeah. Well, he's pretty well known. He's a legend in that right. community. And our conversation, did, you know, he's sponsored by companies, and he, mm -hmm. you know, he's got uh, lots of followers and stuff. But I think um, most of our conversations centered on his experience of risk because he's 44 which is old in that world mm -hmm. right yeah. i mean for yeah. everyone dies doing that basically a lot of people yeah. yeah and he's he told this story about like you know you got your toes over the edge of the cliff three thousand feet up and your buddy you fist bump and your buddy goes off and then you hear a sound yeah and you know he's dead he's gone yeah yeah mm. and then you jump off and you know uh and, but he wasn't like, I'm cool. This is, you know, he, it was like there's a lot of sadness and grief. And mm. um, it, anyway, the point, the, the, the thing about the conversation was that he was talking about how being that tuned in to risk and being that focused and conscious, he felt like all the bullshit in life just falls away and yeah. you're just there with this truth. Right. And so for him, it's almost like a mystical, mm -hmm. uh, religious experience sure. being that 
tuned into truth, which a lot of vets talk about coming back from war, right? Mm-hmm. Like over there, you're getting shot at. Everything matters. Mm-hmm. Everything's focused, and you know, and you miss that. So yeah. maybe his ambition is to live in that truth as much as possible, yeah. right? So yeah. No, which I have respect absolutely. for. And yeah. It's like you said, like on my podcast, I like just talking to random people because I feel like, you know, someone might be a, 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 an ambulance driver, right? A fireman who shows up at the scene of an accident and deals with the misery. I mean, that's to me, I don't know if it's ambitious, but it's incredibly meaningful. Right. Right. Yeah. And my, my sister-in-law is a uh, emergency room nurse. And so like has to, oh, I can't imagine yeah. even processing that trauma. And, and I, I don't associate that with ambition or not ambition. And, and, and the, I think the problem that Ryan and I are having communicating here is Ryan is, is thinking just cause I said the place lacks ambition. I'm, I'm saying that pejoratively. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not mm-hmm. saying it pejoratively. I'm just saying it matter of factly that, that <laughs> right. Which, which actually is, is worse than you meaning to say it pejoratively. <laughs> no, no, because <laughs> no, no, I'm not, I, this I isn't like my opinion. Yeah. This isn't, this isn't my opinion. It's just a fact. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I'm a realist. <laughs> well, it's like saying that it's, if it's 3,200 uh, feet is the elevation there. Yeah. Someone might say, "Well, that's terrible. I hate 3,200 feet." Right. Well, it, that's what I'm saying. I think what your your umbrella statement of like Missoula lacks ambition. Uh-huh. It's it, it it's not a factual thing. It's an opinion, and I think you're allowed to have that opinion. I think what what you said, Doctor Ryan, was <sighs> Dr. perfect. Doctor Ryan, what you said perfect was, "What are you ambitious about?" Yeah. And the people in Missoula, Montana, are ambitious about living a meaningful life in the wilderness. And in, in, in LA, people are very ambitious about making their dent in the universe. Yeah. And so it really depends. Yeah. So it depends on, I mean, the word ambitious, I don't think it's really the definition of the word ambitious as much as what are you ambitious about? And yes, Missoula, Montana, they are ambitious about m- different things than what Los Angeles is ambitious about, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And so so just to cap it off, when I say ambitious, I'm, when I, I mean ambitious. <laughs> the words sounds weird to me now ambitious to serve the greater good right (laughs) and and so yeah while i think there's a toxic ambitiousness that doesn't serve the greater good the insta famous culture like Mm. who cares right like the famous for being famous sort of it's it's noxious it's vapid it's vacuous Mm -hmm. and that that's not that's not good at all um but what I'm talking about is there is there's there's a, a serving the greater good when when I talk about ambition. Yeah. Where I just maybe you weren't hanging out with the right people in Missoula because everyone I knew in Missoula was all about serving the greater good. It it was Possibly. crazy. It was crazy to me how out of a town of like seventy thousand people, there were more like protests and like with mm. you know with the pipeline. Um, it, it's it's such a, a very active like you know liberal city. Um, everyone there, I felt like it was almost too much where I'm like, guys, you don't always have to be protesting something. You don't always have to be adding value. You can, you guys can just chill. You don't right. have to like continuously just it's a university town, right? Right. It yeah. is. Yeah. 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 So yeah, maybe it was the people you're hanging out with, but, but yeah, I mean t- to say that people in Missoula don't serve the greater good. I, I disagree with that too, man, but we're allowed to disagree on that. We are. I yeah. mean, that's great. <laughs> I'm honored to be here for this moment. <laughs> so, so do you guys stage a, a dispute every week? <laughs> no, no, no. We, we did this just for you. Oh, man. thank you. Thank you. <laughs> our our friend, Matt Diavella, he directed our first film. He's working on our second one. He, uh, and this is a perfect conversation for, for Chris Ryan. Um, uh, 
he went to go get a massage and accidentally ended up at a, a rub and tug. Oh joint. yeah, me oh. too. I always accidentally, accidentally, <laughs> no, always like, accidentally. And so like he, in those he, places, give me the address. He like he panicked and, <laughs> and like left. Like he's like, oh my god, I just realized what this is, and he panicked. And so I'm like, come on, Matt. Like how do you accidentally end up at a rub and tug? And then on Sunday. I we had just finished filming for Less Is Now, which is our ne- our next film. We we had a very long weekend. It was great. Like it was that good kind of exhausted. Yeah. And I'm like I am so tense. And it's Sunday night. Is there a place to get a massage? <laughs> there was a woman on the corner who said free. Uh, yeah, massages uh, for rent. <laughs> so so um, I I hop on Google. Right. I'm uh-huh. like. And it's like it's Sunday night. It's like seven thirty, and so like it's later. Uh, is there any place that's open that I can get a massage at right now? And so I type in massages, and two blocks from where I live, less than two blocks, there's a massage place. And so I click on it. And it's four point six stars. I'm like, awesome, sweet. That's yeah. where I'm headed. Yeah. And I start. I walk out the door. I'm like, let me check some of these reviews. And it's like <laughs> the first review is like. Ask for the two-girl combo. I'm like, wait a minute. Oh, right? (laughs) And then the next one's a one-star review. It's like the only one-star review. And it's like, uh, this place is a scam. I don't know why they call it, quote, massages at all. And then instantly in my head, I'm like, well, I am kind of horny. And Bex isn't in town. <laughs> Maybe I should just go to well and, and get a different kind of massage. If you don't, if you don't come, it's not cheating. <laughs> no, Bex and I have already agreed that like a, a rub and tug place is not cheating. Oh my god! Um, and, and so um, the the thing about I, I'm getting ready to go out the door. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Do I want a massage? Or do I just want a hand job? What am I? Do- I can give myself a hand. Here, I'll just stop. Well, well, I'll take care of myself for a moment. Oh my God! <laughs> Ryan turns into the so Puritan you're like here. Jerking off on the sidewalk? <laughs> no, I went back inside. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not the Puritan. I mean, no, no. I'm just saying, oh my God, because that's like what you're supposed to do. Like whenever you think about. Uh, you know, a rub and tug place or going outside the relationship or whatever it is. It's like, go and uh, go and masturbate real quick and then see how you feel afterwards. <laughs> yeah, that is always good advice for just right. about, I think any financial decision right. is probably better impacted. <laughs> it's like, don't shop when you're hungry. Yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> exactly. You buy all the wrong things. <laughs> you don't shop for massages when you're horny. Ooh, that yeah. is hilarious, I've, man. I've spent probably two years cumulatively in thailand in my life and Mm. i've never i've i've never engaged in any of that Mm. not because i have any sort of moral or ethical quandary i i just could never figure it out i haven't like ran into it i saw this article where this dude was in thailand and everyone kept asking him he was he would get massages and they would ask him are you okay and he was like he's like there's a certain point where someone was asking you know the girl was asking me if i was okay oh, that's the code yeah and he oh. was like and he was like well hold on he was like um he was like uh i said yeah i'm fine thanks and then the girl <laughs> said to him you're supposed to ask me if i'm okay and he was like well are you okay and she was like yeah now you got it and so he totally got a rub and tug so he went around thailand and he said he would go up to people at like the club and he'd be like are you okay and like sometimes they would just like burst out in laughter and, but what he found out though what he found out though is are you okay is specifically code for the lady boys oh and it's basically asking oh. are you okay with me being a lady boy if i give you a rub and tug and he had no clue <laughs> he was just going around <laughs> 
Oh, so just so you know, that that is a code in Thailand, and I uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, Brian Callan, the comedian, uh, oh, I'm good sure friend of mine. Okay, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. he uh, he said that he was. I in got a rub and tug from Brian. Actually, he's quite good. He said he was at a massage place, and the lady said, "Do you want me to make the banana weak?" <laughs> That's that doesn't wow. seem very uh That's like poetry. Yeah, that doesn't that? seem very like inconspicuous. Like it seems pretty obvious yeah. what they're asking. It's yeah. like it did her phone app, the the translate app do that for her? it. Sounds it sounds like a direct translation, <laughs> right? right? Translate. Sean, get this coffee away from me. Here, take my cup. I'm I'm done for the day. Uh all right. Um is intelligent sexy? And the reason I asked this question What what are the people who are just who are attracted only to is it panpsychic? What, what? No, no. Sapiosexual. Sapiosexual. They're attracted to only intelligence. Yeah. I don't think it's true. So, so Bex and I were having this conversation this morning, um, and she thinks Chris is sexy, but she thinks <laughs> that. Um, of course he is. And, Look at him. And I'm like, I'm like, well, okay. What? What about him? What makes him sexy? And she's like, well, I don't know. Intelligence. I'm like, so do you want to ride Stephen Hawking's face? <laughs> <laughs> Can't He's dead, Josh. There. Josh, that is too soon. Man. <laughs> Way too soon. <laughs> Way too soon. <laughs> and she like was cracking up. Like she she couldn't. But like so, intelligence is sexy, I guess, to a point, right? Um, but it, I think it's part of this thing where there is an amalgamation. There is a stew of intelligence mm-hmm. and attractiveness and. Uh, you you talked about compatibility and love and, and and chemistry, but there's something and maybe chemistry there are like multiple components. Mm, for that, sure, is that yeah. fair to say? Oh yeah, let's for talk sure. about that. Yeah, I mean, the older I get, the more uh, I feel that our bodies are like conduits for our minds to make love. Mm. You mm. know, and so the actual the the sort of point of contact might be our bodies but what's really interesting is what's happening mentally uh and emotionally psychologically and all that exploration you know um but i i think maybe that's a sign of diminishing testosterone or something because when i was younger it was much more like oh look at that body oh my god i want to squeeze this and yeah. uh and was that in your book where you wrote about the uh transgender yeah. person yeah. who uh was it was uh sh- she was f- well he was female to male yeah transgender but then took testosterone yeah, and all yeah. of a sudden became Ryan Nicodemus overnight because yeah. <laughs> Ryan has like crazy high libido and, <laughs> and like this true story this new this new man right mm. had now your level of testosterone probably not even as high as your testosterone and and started walking around saying I can't control my thoughts anymore yeah yeah, mm. yeah and it was really notable because the person had been like a very feminist lesbian as a woman Mm. very offended by men sort of focusing on women's bodies and all that Mm -hmm. um yeah like she she, it was an episode of this american life um i can't remember the person's name but uh yeah she talked about being on the subway in new york as a as a woman and seeing a woman she was attracted to and thinking ah she looks nice i wonder what's that book she's reading i wonder what we'd talk about if we hung out and you know and nice shoes you know and then uh, when the testosterone uh was kicking in uh she'd see a woman on the subway and just be like 
tits. Yeah. Those tits. <laughs> I just want to squeeze those tits. You know? And she said that, uh, or he said that it gave him great compassion for adolescent boys. Right. To realize, like, that's, you're intoxicated with this stuff, you yeah. know? So I'm 57, and that sort of, that tide has gone out a little bit enough to sort of expose these rocks of, um, I don't know, like uh, compassion and understanding. And I, I mean, I feel like that kind of sexual interaction is much more interesting mm. for me now mm. um, because I'm not so distracted by the physical. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think sexual chemistry uh, is is definitely multifaceted. And I, I think that women's perspective generally is more in alignment with where I am now, yeah. you know, yeah. than that of a young man. I don't think women are just like, you know, cock, I can't get enough cock. Like, they're not yeah. Yeah. running fact, around looking for There's this term, uh, size queens, and it's always men who are size queens. It's pretty queens. much always gay guys, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah, or straight guys. Like, straight guys are far oh. more obsessed with the size of their oh. own right. penis right. than than other women are, yeah. right? Yeah. And and you know, it's not to say that it's nothing, like penis size, but it's it's a very small, it's a small piece of the overall equation, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking to a woman recently, and she said her approach to that, the, the way she thinks about that is like, you know, she there might be penises that are just way too small. She'd never seen one. There are some that are way too big. She has experienced those, uh -huh. and the rest are acceptable. And she doesn't even notice differences within the acceptable range. I like to know? think of mine as above acceptable. <laughs> I like to think of mine as aggressively average. <laughs> oh, no, aggressively acceptable. That's what it is. Yeah. Well, let's get back to uh, uh, Civilized to Death. Um, in the book, you, you sort of talk about... So, so the thesis of the book is once... Um, once we started settling down into civilizations, uh, I think this is uh, uh, in, in the book Sapiens, uh, Noah Yuval Harari talks about how we didn't domesticate wheat, wheat domesticated us. Mm. And ever since we've been domesticated by our crops, essentially, yeah. it was a short-term gain because it was good, as you wrote about in the book, like, oh, now I can actually... I don't have to worry about uh, a famine this season. Yeah. Farmers started making money. Right, yeah. right. And, and and so it was a, sh a short-term gain, but as with many short-term gains, there are long-term consequences, and mm -hmm. there is a price of, of progress here. And soon, very soon, hierarchical societies popped up, and then we became obsessed with power in a way that maybe we weren't before. Hmm. Why do we become so obsessed? Uh, why do these hierarchies become so obsessed with dominance and power in a way that maybe foragers weren't? Well, you know, I think you're touching on it in, in your question there. The, the relationship between people and their environment changed radically. So foragers are, they see themselves as living within the natural world and part of the natural world. And their attitude toward the natural world is one of gratitude. So, you know, we, I quoted an anthropologist saying that even though foragers have nothing, they act as if they're extremely wealthy. Uh -huh. And in the modern world, we have everything and we act as if we're poor. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, we're, you know, always worried about saving up more and, oh, I got to retire and I got to do this. I got to save. I got to yeah. protect what I have. And, uh, um, foragers see the natural world as providing everything they need. 
all the food you need, it's out there. Uh, material to make your bows and your arrows and your arrowheads and your shelter, it's out there. It's all out there. Um, so it's kind of like they look at the world the way we would look at, uh, you know, a, a city if we had a credit card with no limit on it that we never had to pay. It's like whatever you need. You don't need to carry clothes around. Just buy them. When these get dirty, just buy some more, you know. like right. Everything's out there. So um, they have a, a sense of gratitude toward that world because it's giving you what you need. Once you shift into a farming situation, then you have accumulated resources. That's the key, accumulated resources. Once you have that, you have a storage of grain from the harvest, right? Who decides who gets that grain? Mm. Who defends that grain from people who want to steal it, right? Starving people who might want to steal it. Because now your population's growing really quickly. You've got disease running rampant because you're living in close proximity to domesticated animals. So you got like an incubator for these things. You've got got pathogens jumping over from the animals, Mm. and they spread really quickly because people are in you know, close proximity to one another. They stay in the same place. So you're living in all this filth, mm. right? All the, all the uh, shit from the animals and people and everything. So the conditions of life became very harsh mm. with the first agriculturalists. Nutrition was w- much worse. People lost about six inches of uh, stature. Mm. The You look at hunter-gatherer skeletons and the first farming skeletons in the same areas. Universally, they're smaller they're less healthy. They have signs in their bones and their teeth of nutrient deficiencies, uh, much higher rates of violence and disease. So uh, life became very harsh. And you see mm. this reflected in old stories like the Old Testament, right? Uh, it goes from paradise, right, literally, to, oh, no, you screwed up. Now, life is hard. Life is hard. You mm. don't work. You shall not eat. Yeah. You'll give birth in pain. Uh, women became property of men. Slavery uh, became commonplace. All these scourges of humanity arose uh, directly out of this shifted, this radically changed approach to uh, how we interacted with the natural world. The natural world was now an enemy to be conquered, to be dominated, mm. to be feared. Yeah. Um, and the point I make in Civilized to Death is that that shift um, to uh, from feeling uh, gratitude toward the natural world to being afraid and suspicious and, and uh, angry about the natural world is reflected within ourselves, right? Because we're also being told that human nature, it's your inner nature is not to be trusted. Mm. That's also uh, harsh and horrible. And, yeah. You know, life before the state was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And it's your only book the is, state is, that is helps to say us. That, that's bullshit. It's bullshit. Yeah. It's clearly bullshit. Yeah. I mean, Thomas Hobbes was writing in 1651, right? He knew nothing about hunter gatherers. He right. was just totally pulling that out of his ass. Mm. Um, and he was actually writing about his own world, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which was very brutish. Let's talk about the Hobbesian worldview. So for folks who, yeah. aren't, who aren't familiar. So the Hobbesian worldview uh, is that, the, you know, as I said, this life before the state was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. It, all, it's wrong on every count. And so, so the, uh, you, you set that up to say, well, our civilized society is so much better than the way things were. Like, things might be difficult now, but imagine how terrible they were for our right. ancestors. Yeah, that's the propaganda that we're, we're fed to make us more accepting of uh, modern life. It's so much better than it used to be. Mm. Stop complaining. <clears throat> so one of the most common lines 
you know, I, I talk about this stuff at cocktail parties, you know, and I get the same. It's almost like a focus group. You get the same answers. I'm sure you guys deal with this as well. Sure. Like, I like my big house. Oh, what? Right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, I get two, two of the most common things are, yeah, what about vaccines mm-hmm. and antibiotics, right? We have this great medicine now that saves us from all these terrible things. And the, the thing people don't understand is that most of what modern medicine partially addresses uh, was caused by civilization. Right. Heart disease, diabetes, hypertension, uh, most forms of cancer, almost all uh, infectious diseases. Yeah. None of these existed before mm-hmm. uh, agriculture. Yeah. So it's as if you're saying, well, thank God, you know, these days we have airbags and seatbelts and our ancestors all died in auto accidents. Like, they didn't have cars, man. Right. <laughs> you know, it's not an issue. Right. And the other thing I get is like, well, we've doubled the human lifespan. Mm. That's totally false. Yeah. Mm. Totally false. Yeah, we hear it all the time. Like, you, people used to die at age 30. Right. It's like, well, on the aggregate. And you had an interesting thing in the book about uh, we also, there were some kids who just weren't able to survive. And that, sure. that added to the infant mortality well, as it. well. Yeah, the infant mortality thing is, is a big part of this misunderstanding that a lot of, uh, between 30 and 40% of hunter-gatherer kids don't make it past age 10. Mm. That's horrible. I mean, there's no sugarcoating that. And, and I'm not, you know, people think it's some sort of Rousseauian argument that noble savages. And, no, I just want to reassess, I want to do a more informed cost-benefit analysis of civilization. Yeah. I think it's time for that. Yeah. We're, we're living through the collapse uh, of Western civilization. Mm-hmm. And so maybe it's time to really look at what are the costs and what are the true benefits. And the idea that we've doubled the human lifespan is just propaganda. Mm-hmm. Once hunter-gatherers get past the age of 10, they live into their 70s and even 80s in some cases. Yeah. So our they, natural age of death, our modal age of death, is between 72 and 78. And it's kind of always been. Always been. Yeah. That's our species. In, in, yeah. in the book, you talk about death versus dying and how we're really suffering now. Right, because yeah. we're extend. what we're doing, we're not living longer, we're dying more slowly. Oh, dude. You know, it's we like that podcast, Sean. Yeah, that is. Yeah, it's like That's a it's like a basketball game, right? Yeah. You know, the last two minutes take half an hour, yeah, absolutely, because all the timeouts and the commercials. It drives and, my wife crazy whenever I watch a basketball game. Yeah, you and lose the all the drama. Right. It's like why bother watching the first, you know, three quarters? Yeah. And and interestingly, it's the same interests that string it out. It's commercial interests make right. more money. Yeah. Right. Over half the medical expenditures in the United States medical system are in the last year of life Mm. my father died a little over a year ago i saw it happening test after test after test the guy's 79 years old Mm. he's his kidneys are failing he's got liver cancer he's got like why are you i actually had to call his doctor and say what are you doing Mm. i know he's got great insurance Stop draining it. Yeah, because yeah. he has to. You want to order the test? Send your send your husband in, right? Send someone else in. He doesn't need these tests. The well, guy, the let thing, him die. The, yeah. the, the doctors all agree that the only thing I want is pain medication at the end of my life. That's it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You look at what doctors order for their patients versus what they do for themselves. They don't do those interventions. Mm. They just want pain meds and let me go. Yeah. So uh, you have a like. There's a section in your book where you talk about how. Um, basically, there are like two billion obese people, and that, but there are you know eight hundred million who are malnourished or, or starving, 
And it made me think, because reading your book, it's hard for me to really get my head around like how civilization has actually, it's not the progress we we think that it is. And I guess looking at that example with 2 billion over obese people, 800 million malnourished people, is the problem that maybe the uh, resources we have aren't being dispersed properly? Like, I, I guess my, my question is, is that could we live in a civilized world and it be okay if we were, you know, kind of, and I'm not trying to like, you know, start a argument or, or a conversation around socialism, but you know, if we spread things out equally, would that, would that create a better civilized world? Well, yeah. I mean, I think everyone would benefit from that. As we were talking about earlier, even very wealthy people suffer from being very wealthy. Right. Yeah. Um, now they don't necessarily want to give up that wealth because they're indoctrinated in this idea that wealth equals status. It equals value. You got to compete with your neighbor, get a bigger yacht than your your buddy has, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but in fact, the research shows quite clearly that above about seventy five thousand dollars a year, mm-hmm. um, more money doesn't equate to greater happiness. Right. Or uh, if there's any change, it's very very small. Yeah. Um, you know, more money, more problems. Right. 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 Um, so it would certainly be better if there were a way of doing that. Um, but I think that, you know, you mentioned obesity and and people don't have enough to eat. The problem is obesity is also malnourishment, right? right? right yeah. you, can, you can be, you know, have 5,000 calories a day and still not be getting the right nutrition. Uh, and still, you know, you can eat 5,000 calories of donuts and processed yeah, foods. Right. So it's not just a question of, of di- you know, sort of distributing calories, but also what are we eating? What is the food that we're creating? We're constantly scaling up. No one seems to be questioning this notion of growth, eternal growth mm-hmm. in, in, in the economy is this sort of catechism. Mm-hmm. Why does it have to keep growing? How can yeah. it keep growing? That's right. the ideology of a cancer cell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so not all growth is good growth. There is there's such thing as good growth or responsible growth, and and so I, it doesn't seem to me that your book is a diatribe against all growth. I it, differentiate growth from maturation. Okay, I think that's an important distinction. Expand on that. Well, I think that an economy, a relationship, a person stops growing uh, at an ideal point and and becomes more mature. Mm. And so I think that what we need to start thinking about is what is a, a mature level for humanity, not constantly growing, not a constant population growth. You yeah. see these commercials, Archer Daniels Midland, you know, to feed a growing world. Well, why does it have to keep growing? Yeah. <laughs> the world yeah. isn't growing. Yeah. The right. population is, and that's actually detrimental. Right. The idea more people means better life is actually the opposite of true. Yeah. Well, at the end of your book, you talk about how you know this world has plenty of resources for 100 million people. In oh, fact, sure. it could be a, a type of of utopia yeah and and, um i think the problem though that that we've reached now is we can't put the toothpaste back in the tube right Right. and and so how do we move forward because we're not going to go back to to hunting and gathering obviously in fact it's what what did i write down here it's non-participation in civilized society is no longer an option Mm. sure right and and so we we, we've actually missed out on that option by the way i think your book is in a in a 
per, sort of perverse way a the best argument for libertarianism mm. <laughs> like, like like true libertarianism like the foragers are actually the the real libertarians mm. it's like it we always look for like podcast sean is a libertarian and so um we always look for a and by the way libertarians tend to have some of the best arguments like in terms of debating and uh and but we look we, we don't have a example to point toward like the the closest thing to libertarian society now is like somalia or something where where it's chaos like you never want to live in that environment but if you go back far enough you go back 15,000 20,000 30,000 years they were in a in a sort of strange way the original libertarian societies. Yeah, May, it's funny. Not. I never thought about that, but like, uh, you know, before Columbus came over to the, to the United States, like it was kind of a. I feel like it was a libertarianism type. I mean, that's not what they called it, and they didn't really have government, but all the natural mechanisms were in place. People respected the land. They respected other tribes. I mean, there were some wars and stuff, but yeah, it's like. Uh, there's not a true example of it though. It's funny. I look at libertarianism though. Like I look at communism. It looks great on paper, <laughs> but like the problem is, is like people are imperfect and it's almost like communism is half-assed libertarianism because libertarianism is, is you let people, uh, you know, do the right thing and you let every, all the levers, uh, kind of, you know, ebb and flow as they would naturally happen. Yeah, the market dictates. Right. Where communism, where communism like dictates how everything runs. So it's, it's like this half-assed, like you put the levers in place and then expect those to run properly where libertarianism is like, no, we'll let the natural levers fall in place. Yeah. yeah. The thing is anarchy doesn't scale. No, that's the problem. Like, <laughs> right. and we, I think we mentioned Dunbar's number earlier. You know, hunter-gatherer societies are never more than 150 people. Oh, okay. uh, which means everyone knows each other, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, reputational damage is is very important. So, if you hoard food and don't share it with the rest of the group, everybody's going to know, right? And that's going to mess things up for you. Mm -hmm. uh, you might, you know, you won't get laid. People won't respect you as much. It matters, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Whereas when you get into large scale societies, uh, I could, you know, I could work in a phone bank ripping off old ladies. Nobody's going to know. Right. And as long as I'm nice to my friends, I don't have a problem. There's no reputational damage. Right. So it's totally ostracized uh, if you were in a hunter gatherer community of 150 people you right. they, they wouldn't even allow you in anymore right and the, and we go through that i go through that in the book the different stages of social control if somebody tries to hoard their food or is acts aggressively and tries to get to you know too big for their britches in a hunter gatherer society first there's humor uh, people laugh at you and, uh, oh, look at Ryan. Ryan thinks he's great because he, he shot that <laughs> mm -hmm. deer. He wants everyone to know, hey, everybody, right. Ryan shot the deer. Oh, yeah. thank you, Ryan. It's uh, so nice of you. You know, there's all that. Yeah. And then and I, I tell stories about anthropologists who got all confused when they were on the receiving end of that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then if that doesn't work, someone might take Ryan aside and say, listen, Ryan, mm, people are talking about you. You're getting you. too big for your britches, you man. You got to calm it down, buddy. Yeah. You know. Mm -hmm. And then if that doesn't work, Ryan <laughs> might have a hunting accident. <laughs> yeah. You know, because everybody's yeah. armed. I love that example how like uh, someone would, would kill an animal and then people would come out from the tribe to help 
bring the animal and they would say things like oh there's this animal's so skinny did yeah. you really need me to come really? out here and uh, th- that animal's so small why would you kill that animal that's not going to yeah. feed anyone yeah. like totally yeah even I, though it's a plentiful right. reward but <laughs> oh, it's yeah. to keep the person humble it's right. Right. it's it's sort of promoting humility in a way now uh, also the the concept of work comes up in the right. book and I, it's funny. When, so Ryan and I, we were in the corporate world. I managed 150 retail stores uh, in my late 20s. And and when I left that world of 80-hour work weeks and work, 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 my life was work and it was burning me out, I became allergic to the word work. Like I stopped saying workout. I would say exercise, right? Yeah. I, I would stop saying, you know, uh, I got to do the work or, you know, whatever. Like, I, I just avoided that that term altogether. And you're the first person I've, I've seen actually write that down and sort of articulate that where there are some cultures who don't even have a a catch-all phrase or yeah. term or word for the for work it's just these different things that we do in order to live our lives right there's no there's no concept of why you would do something you don't want to do mm. <sighs> right yeah yes. i mean it's they really don't understand it so but, when but we we understand it as well i've got to do the work right it reminds me yeah. of like uh we had a gal who was at one of our events who, you know, she came up to the mic, she asked a question, but she, she prefaced her question with like, I, you know, I, I have advertisements. On, I know you guys don't do any advertisements on your website or your podcast, but I have to have them on my blog. And I'm like, okay, wait a minute. You have to have? She's like, well, yeah, you know, you got to do what you got to do to make money. And I'm like, well, okay. I think the chief marketing officer at Marlboro says the same exact thing. Yeah. And that's really the point. It's If it's not, ser- if you're doing something that doesn't serve the greater good or is it just negative toxic to yourself then that is a problem it's doing things you dislike because you you your your culture or pop culture has told you it's virtuous yeah yeah although as you said earlier uh, non-participation in the civilized world is no longer an option right? right so people are part of the market economy the money economy whether they like it or not you can't just go and live off the land anymore no, and disengage right. from it. You'll be arrested. And yeah, in fact, in yeah. fact, the the you, you talk about what well, adolescent or or uh, you know teen sexuality in a lot of cultures and how it's not taboo like it is here. And and I get to thinking, you know, Ella is six now, uh, my daughter, and there will be a time where, like, obviously, we have to start, have to start having these conversations. And I don't want to be puritanical about sex, and I would like to be open, but also. If I if I treated it like a a hunter gatherer, what I'd probably be arrested. Mm. It, where it's like, oh yeah, you can have sex as long as it's under my roof, and it's like, well, no, I'm pro- I might get in trouble for that. Well, actually. that's not just hunter gatherers; it's Holland. You know, I, I talked about the differences between the U.S. and Holland yeah. in, in that yeah. respect. Um, and not six-year-olds, obviously, but when they become oh. teenagers and they start having relationships. They're post-pubescent or pubescent. Yeah, it's typical to invite, oh, you have a boyfriend, we'll invite him over for dinner. Let's right. let's meet him. And, mm-hmm. you know, they meet him, and if he's a good kid, like, hey, okay, well, you know, you can spend the night here, but you guys know about condoms, right? And, you know, and like, that's the way they approach it. And what are their rates of STDs and teen pregnancy? A fraction of right. what we have in this abstinence-only nuttiness that we have going on over here. Yeah. Right. So it's it's clearly a, a much better approach to, to sexuality, yeah. Yeah, well it's, it makes me think about, earlier you were talking about how we kind of disregard our nature 
and we disregard the world. And religion, I think, is a huge part of that. It's like when I think about me being raised as a Jehovah's Witness, I mean, literally, I saw them on the, on the street not too long ago, and they have this sign, and it's like, what is the real life? Mm. And the real life to them is, well, it's not what you see here. It's not this earth that you see here. It's This is uh, far from what the real life is. Yeah. And one day, Jesus is going to come down and fix everything and make it the real life. But, I mean, I guess to, to my point of uh, sex is involved with that, like uh, the, the attitude towards sex. We, as pubescent teenagers, you get horny. You want to have sex. So instead of like trying to, you know, mask that, it's it's so much better to cultivate it rather than try to, to cover it up. Yeah, because yeah. it, it always gets distorted and, and comes out in destructive, toxic ways, yeah. either through shame, so it's self-destructive, or in, in, in violence. You know, mm-hmm. as I said, in, in I wrote in Civilized to Death, a lot of these mass shootings in the U.S. are these incel guys, these, mm-hmm. these guys who... Almost all of them. Yeah, yeah. They don't know how to relate to women. They, they are afraid and resentful of women yeah. because they, can, they see the women holding something back that they need right. and they don't know how to get it. They don't know how to, to be happy and so they, they act out. It's to be clear, that's their horrible. perception. Women aren't holding anything no, back. No, that, that, that's not. how they see it in their twisted mind. Right. Uh, speaking of twisted minds, you write about schizophrenia. In, in the book, and this is a, a subject that's very close to home to me. My, my father was uh, was schizophrenic and essentially killed himself. He was 52, drank himself to death, and like he had elaborate relationships with people who didn't exist in the real world. And well, one of my brothers uh, was schizophrenic, and he killed himself. He threw himself in front of a train at one point. And uh, two things on schizophrenia. One is Harvard's doing some amazing research on changing diet and, and uh, removing all sort of carbohydrates, and actually effectively curing schizophrenia mm. or, or, or it's not really curing it because if you go back on carbohydrates you start hearing voices again really? i found that really fascinating so they're really helping people with a sort of ketogenic diet thing which sounds like a it's a a fad but they've been doing it since the 90s apparently um helping people with these mental issues but i never thought about schizophrenia this way just because i'm american i, I have the very sort of western idea of schizophrenia the voices are different around the world that schizophrenics here. Isn't that wild? <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah. Can we talk yeah, about that? Sure. Well, auditory hallucinations are pretty much universal in schizophrenics. And um, yeah, as Tanya Lerman at Stanford has done this research where she looked at uh, schizophrenics in the U.S. I think it was a town in California. Uh, I think it was Ghana in West Africa and in India. And all of these people heard voices and um, the voices in the U.S. are, you know, sort of what we're familiar with, the sort of angry, you know, you're no good, you're a piece of shit, you should die, you know, all this kind of yeah. horrible, shaming kind of voice. Um, the voices in Ghana were, like, saying things like, um, you know, you should, today's a good day to clean the kitchen, you know, sort of a Martha. <laughs> Maybe I am schizophrenic. <laughs> sort of a, a Martha Stewart voice in your yeah. head. Uh, uh, and then in India, they were like the voices of, of the ancestors, you know, your grandmother loves you and, you know, we love you. We're watching you. We're taking care of you. Uh, so it's sort of nurturing, right? Hmm. And, you know, my wife Casilda is a, a psychiatrist. Uh, I remember talking with her about this a long time ago and she said, you know, I never try to get my patients to ignore the voices. 
because the truth is we all hear voices, sure. which is true. I yeah. have auditory hallucinations all the time. Sure, yeah. It's like napping. You hear like I, I, I'll wake up like, oh, what? Right. And there's no one there. Absolutely. But I heard the voice, yeah. you know. That's definitely happened to me. Yeah. yeah. Or even less explicitly, you're just driving along and there's a voice in your head, you know, talking. You're right. sort of imagining things. So it's not a question of whether you hear voices or not. It's how do you deal with those voices? Yeah. Are you afraid of them? And uh, or accepting of them, and also what are they saying to you? Right, right. What messages are they bringing to you? And that's very much culturally determined. And in our culture, we we call the people who have the sort of negative voices that they've been acculturated to to hear in a way. We call those people schizophrenic. Yeah. We call the other people daydreamers or something. <laughs> or, or creative. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so it. I just found that to be so fascinating because. The the idea of of schizophrenia not being necessarily uh, uh, even a uh, a life ending or life altering disease or whatever you want to call it, it it's never been framed that way before. Well, I, I talked about Black Elk Speaks, which is yes. an amazing book, um, and I won't go into it too much here. But the point there is that black elk experience symptoms that we would call a psychotic break um very typical of a psychotic break it happened in his teens typical time for it to start heard voices had uh, feelings of grandiosity that he could change the weather that animals were speaking to him all these sorts of things and he had this vision uh, he was uh, unconscious for several days had some swelling and weird physiological um, symptoms as well. And he had this very elaborate vision. And when he came to, he um, the, the shaman sat down with him and asked him to explain the vision in detail. Mm-hmm. And the vision involved uh, four horsemen riding in on t- different colored horses from mm-hmm. different directions <laughs> and the tribe dancing in a circle and uh, singing these sacred songs and this whole thing. Um, so then what did they do? What we would do is drug him, send him to an asylum maybe, or just drug him and leave him on the street and mm-hmm. hope the cops will take care of it or, you know, horrible the way we deal with these situations. But yeah. what they did was the tribe got together and reenacted his vision. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. They sat him down in the center of the of the circle and they had the they painted the horses and they wore the uniform the outfits that he had described. They sang the songs that he had described, dancing in the circle. So here's this kid terrified, sitting in the center of the village, the entire everyone he knows participating in this ritualistic embrace mm. of him. Right, yeah. total support and love. Why do they do that? They do that because people who hear, who who sort of move between worlds, which is what schizophrenics do in this framing of it, are shamans. They're being called to shamanize. Uh-huh. They have a great power. They don't know how to use it yet because mm. they're still young. It's new to them. They're victims of it. But if we can support them and help them channel this and learn to harness this, then they'll be able to go between this world and the other worlds to solve problems and find out why you're sick and mm. you know uh, see the future and different things that are of great value value to the tribe right yeah. mm. and so this is common of shamanic societies which virtually all foragers were it's a totally different approach we call it a sickness they call it a, an almost magical power yeah, yeah a gift wow we call yeah. it psychosis often and speaking of, of psychosis 
the, I think the real psychopaths here were Christopher Columbus. I mean, he's the villain of your book, oh if anyone God. is. Yeah. Um, I yeah. some of the stuff I'd never. I mean, I knew. How, I knew it how intellectually. Bad, right? Yeah, and yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, it's like I, I always looked at Columbus Day like why do we celebrate this guy? But then like going into the detail mm. just blows my mind. Yeah. yeah. The, the thesis is that civilization turned uh, normal people over several, many generations into effectively psychopaths. And, and, mm. and, mm. and it wasn't just, you know, we can go too far with this, say, well, the white man were the psychopaths here. No, you, you say in the book too, like, well, the Aztecs and the Incas and the Mayans, they were all psychopaths as right, well, right. E- equally psychotic. And the commonality is civilization, once they became quote civilized, they did the most uncivilized thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, when he came over here, what was the, the quote about, uh, they're like, so nice they're the perfect people yeah, yeah they're the most beautiful people in the world yeah there's even some i don't know if i included this in the book but there's some speculation that he didn't actually think he was in india that that story oh that he uh, he called them you know he's writing in spanish to the king and the queen i quoted from some of his letters back to the king and the queen describing the people they're so mm-hmm. generous they're so kind yeah. if you express admiration for anything they just give it to you yeah right because that's right. a hunter-gatherer approach right yeah. you don't hoard anything you like it great take it whatever yeah. um uh there's like fish and plentiful food everywhere and their bodies are beautiful they're healthy and he says uh, seguramente es gente que viven en Dios. These are certainly people who live with God in Dios, mm. Indians. So some oh. some historians say that's where the whole Indian thing comes from. That oh. he wrote that es gente que vive en Dios. Interesting. Yeah. So I, the, I don't know. I'm not arguing yeah. that. I don't right. know the material well enough. But well, his point was certainly like these people live in paradise. Right. And then he pivots and says with 50 people i could enslave them all right these would make great servants oh yeah. my god i mean yeah. talk about a terrifying plot twist and a real life one this isn't just in a book i mean uh what was it 90 percent of all the americas were gone within what a century or something oh, yeah oh, yeah god, the yeah. population the genocide was incredible most of it to be fair most of it was from smallpox and other contagious diseases that they civilized diseases right? civilized diseases of civilization yeah mm. yeah for sure but columbus i mean what he did to the people in hispaniola was incredible and it wasn't disease it was you know, I mean, oh. the disregard, the, you know, soldiers sharpening their sword and an Indian walks by and, hey, there's a sharp, and they just kill an Indian to see if their sword is sharp enough, you know, yeah. um, the, ho- what, the horrible atrocities. What about yeah. civilization forces us, and not forces us, but encourages us to behave like that? Well, I think, you know, we have... I think one of the great tragedies of civilization is that it's so good at taking um, healthy, even beautiful appetites and impulses that we have and twisting them to its own purposes. Mm. Uh, You know, if I had to summarize the whole thesis of the book, I would say uh, civilization doesn't serve humanity. Humanity serves civilization. Yeah. And uh, tweet that, tweet, <laughs> tweet that. <laughs> um, you know, 
I was thinking about this the other day, Veterans Day, right? Last week, or was it Veterans Day last week? Yeah, or, I think it's a couple weeks Memorial ago. Memorial Day, yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. I, I always mix up Let's all these things. Let's talk about your tweets on that day. Oh, you saw that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. You were excoriated by some. Was I? I didn't uh, even notice. But I, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I, honestly, I don't read He's the. Uh, thick skin. Um, you don't read the replies? That's, that's yeah, that's probably no, good. That's no, a rather I'm, mature approach. I, that's I, what I do on our YouTube videos. I don't read any of the comments because, like, I just start. I picked out one bad comment. I'm like, but you just don't understand what I'm trying to <laughs> do you say. you have that cartoon yeah. still, Jordan? I from, do. From uh, the other day? Sometimes I'll look at the YouTube comments when I'm on Rogan's show. Yeah. Because it's uh, such a like a diverse audience yes. and, and two-thirds of them hate me. And, and it's, like a, it's like a psychological Wim Hof ice bath. Oh, interesting. You know what I, mean? I like It's that, like yeah. if I can read that stuff and not get thrown off balance, I figure it's a good exercise. Yeah, no, it's, that's a good we, approach We did too. A, a YouTube video with Wim Hof. We didn't do a podcast with him, but we did a, a YouTube video with Yeah, thanks with to him. Doc Ryan. He uh, totally oh. sent him over here. Yeah. Oh, oh, there yeah. you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and cool. and yeah. Uh, yeah, the the sort of... The, the the there's something about you know we, we were talking about pleasure earlier but like putting yourself in these moments of it's extreme discomfort like ryan and i do ice baths all the time mm-hmm. uh, i do uh, there's a sauna at the apartment building i live in and you can rig it to get to like 230 degrees you gotta show me how to do that i want to see if i can do that with my sauna yeah i'll show you um and 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 <laughs> And so, like, it is uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Ryan was never heard from again. <laughs> I got it's, up to 400. <laughs> th- there's a particular kind of pleasure in you know, the the aftermath of discomfort. Yeah. yeah. Maybe tweet that, Sean. You can... You, you can you, it sounds like a masochist <laughs> would say that. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah oh, for man. sure. Or a sadist, depending on mm-hmm. uh, their perspective. All right. Well, a few other things I definitely wanted to talk about. You had mentioned all of the smallpox and... And, and now, but now we have vaccines for these things, right. these diseases that, that we've, we've effectively caused. Yeah. caused <laughs> the day, right? Right. But here's what I'll say. I know, and I'm, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. My, my daughter has been vaccinated. Uh, I feel like I, for whatever reason, I have to like, uh, I have to have some sort of stipulation there. In this day and um, age, man. Yeah. But I know a lot of smart parents who don't vaccinate their kids. Yeah. Um, really smart. Like, I know, weird to say, I know doctors who don't vaccinate their kids. Yeah, sure. And I'm not encouraging people, if you're listening to this, I'm not saying you shouldn't vaccinate your kids. I honestly have no idea. How about that? Yeah. I don't know whether you or whether or not. I know that there are risks involved with the vaccinations and really it comes down to whether or not you want to take those risks. I remember when I was a kid and the doctor was explaining to my mother, hey, this is the polio vaccine. Your kid has a one in 1,000 chance he might get polio from this vaccine. And it scared the crap out of me as a kid. And every little stomach ache I had for the next day or two, I was like, Mom, do I have polio? (laughs) Am I the one that got polio? But there is that risk, though, of like that you have to consider. So, I mean, it's, yeah. But in this day and age, it's funny how, like, I feel the same way. You have to take a stance on whether or not you're for or against vaccines. But you're right. There's a third option. I don't freaking know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Which is generally a good option, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We can't know everything, right? I think I think we don't we don't really know, and I, there are some there are implications for vaccinating your kids, and there are implications for not vaccinating your kids, right? right? And yeah. let's face it, there there's good reason to distrust the medical establishment. Oh yeah, Absolutely. they've been wrong about virtually everything you know yeah Yeah. and and they act as if they're never wrong so and they're driven by money they're not driven by the lives that they save i mean yeah so it's not not to impugn individual doctors who are you know really trying to do their job but they're part of a system like you were talking about earlier what is it that forces us to act in ways that are uncivilized we could you on i hate using that word to imply 
you know, civilized is good and uncivilized Versus, yeah. is bad because I actually look at things the opposite way. Right. right. Um, well, in but the traditional sense of it, like yeah, we get it, we get subsumed into a system. We get we get absorbed into a super organism, and mm. we behave in ways that are against our interests, against our values, yeah. to keep your job. To to mean, you know, people say to me like, you know, you're always like the motherfucker awards that you know we have here in L.A. December third. December third. If you're in town. Uh, you know, people say well, you're you're you know criticizing these companies. There are good people that work at Exxon. Like, yeah, I'm sure there are yeah. good people that work at Exxon. But if the CEO, the most powerful person at Exxon, went to Peru with his son and did some ayahuasca and had an epiphany, and then went into work Monday morning and said, "Gentlemen, we're not doing deep water drilling anymore. We can't guarantee we're not going to destroy the oceans. What do you think's going to happen? Right. He's out before lunch. Right. Yep. And they're going to bring. He in the doesn't new one. run Exxon. Exxon runs him. Yes. Ah. Right. Yeah. Just yes. like we don't run civilization, it runs us. Yep. Right. So that I think we need to learn to think in these terms and to understand that what civilization does, which is the same thing that corporations do and all these super organisms, they see what we're hungry for and they give it to us in exchange for obedience. Mm. So we're hungry for a sense of belonging because as we mentioned earlier, hunter-gatherers, if you're not part of the group, you're dead. Right? Yeah. So that's why it's so painful to be excluded and kicked out of something. Yeah. Um, and that's why Facebook is like, here you go. You can belong. <laughs> you can belong in exchange for all your data, yeah. right? Uh, in exchange for any sense of privacy you might have had. Mm -hmm. And also what we're giving you to replace – it's a cheap copy of belonging. Right. We're giving you Facebook friends instead of friends. Right. Uh, we're giving you processed food instead of food, right? Everything yeah. is this. Yeah, Facebook is the Twinkies of belonging. Oh. Tweet that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a processed life. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. exactly yeah. what it is. Yeah. 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 I mean, I tell this story uh, about the the grasshoppers. You know, I don't know if you remember this section in the oh, book. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the, in uh, the locusts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's in North Africa. There's a tribe, or tribe. There's a, a species of of insect. It's grasshoppers, and they live dispersed. They're peaceful. They're chill. They just chew on grass and hang out. Then the rains come. The grasslands grow. The grasshopper population increases. Then the rains stop. The grasslands start to shrink. The grasshoppers start to get get tighter and tighter together. And at a certain population density, dormant genes are triggered epigenetic changes occur in these animals not over generations in an in individual so mm -hmm. one grasshopper his head changes shape his coloring changes his back legs get longer short legs get shorter huh. and their behavior changes they start to get more aggressive mm. they start they were totally vegetarian now they they're cannibalistic cannibalistic they start biting each other they get all agitated and anxious and they start to fly and they swarm and this oh. is the swarm of locusts, the mm. biblical swarm of locusts mm. that comes and eats everything, destroys everything. It's the metaphor for consumerism in, exactly. in many ways. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's exactly the sequence of events that gives rise to agriculture and wow. civilization. Wow. Something else you talked about in your book, and I'm probably going to do a bad job of paraphrasing this, but you talked about how, so the outliers, the people who hoard, who do things that the typical tribe wouldn't, the unfortunate thing is, is that when you have someone who takes advantage of the tribe, they tend to be the one who survives. 
Well, it, that's it, what Steven Pinker <laughs> and Richard Dawkins argue. That's and the, you take you take them on pretty head yeah. on in yeah. the book. So yeah, um, in a way that uh, I was really impressed by because I think it's it's hard to take on because th- by the way they they have a lot of good contributions to science and and to and they're both critical way thinking. smarter than i am no uh, doubt okay i mean right uh, it's like that we had the conversation i don't know you about- are a doctor <laughs> uh but you yeah i've i've never seen someone take on uh dawkins and pinker as facilely as as you did in the book yeah. and um i i just i found myself not wanting to agree with you but agreeing mm. with you at every turn yeah yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well I, I mean i to be clear i'm i'm responding to a particular aspect of their writing which is where they're obviously uh, what i would call neo-hobbesian so they a lot of their thinking is based on this idea that nature is cruel uh, that life be, without civilization was a constant struggle for survival, um, that you know, we're so lucky to have all this now. And one, one aspect of their argument is that hunter-gatherers could not possibly have been these sort of egalitarian, peace-loving, you know, cooperative people that uh, folks like me are describing because you would have some selfish infiltrator, mm-hmm. someone who either would come in from outside or from within the society a, a Trumpian, you know, kind of character who yeah. would say, "No, no, this is all for me. Fuck y'all. I don't want to work. I just want to eat, and mm-hmm. you know, just take, take, take." Right. And that would be to his advantage because he'd have more children and he'd flourish because all these other people are just generous and they wouldn't know how to stand up to him. Mm-hmm. And so eventually, that you know, those genes or that approach to life would become dominant. Right. So this is sort of a laboratory game theory recreation of what right. would happen. Yeah. Unfortunately, Pinker and Dawkins don't look at actual data on how hunter-gatherers live. Mm. Uh, if they did, they would see that egalitarianism is universal among hunter-gatherers. And that hunter-gatherers have, as we talked about earlier, um, very clearly defined and, and rigorous mechanisms for weeding out those sorts of characters, right? right? Hunting accidents. <laughs> Ultimately, a hunting accident. A guy, you know, with the Trumpian approach to life would not last long in a hunter-gatherer society. Yeah. Uh, he'd be ridiculed, he'd be ostracized, and if he persisted, he'd be pushed off a cliff. Interesting. So in, in the civilized world, they do flourish. They do. And yeah. so it's the opposite. It's like mm. what I said about Hobbes. He was writing about his own world. Right. You know? And yeah. I, I think some of these people are writing about their own world. You know, in Sex at Dawn, we called it Flintstonization where you assume that prehistory was just sort of an earlier version of this. Right. But that's a f- that's a flaw of imagination there because in fact prehistory was radically different from this. Yeah. yeah. Had nothing to do with this. It's like it's like when you watch uh what's Blade Runner? Remember the movie Blade Runner? Oh yeah. Uh they they predicted a future that like had no cell phones or like computers or internet or anything like that. It's the it's like the inverse of that where like we were predicting a past, which by the way you can actually find out what happened in the past. Right, like, there's data. But, but like Pinker and, and Dawkins and 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 Hobbes and at all are are predicting a past that didn't actually exist. Yeah. And yeah. um and, and 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 then of course drawing conclusions on a past that didn't really exist. Yeah. It's uh. 
it's it's sort of a a, a mythical past or or a, it's it's an alternate universe that they're drawing their their sort of wisdom from. But it serves yeah. the narrative of how we're lucky to be alive now. The opposite's right. the, true when people talk about you and Sex at Dawn in particular. Like where you're and even this book, I'm sure they're saying, well, you're getting you're gathering the information to serve the narrative that you you want to serve, but I didn't find it that way, especially uh, it didn't seem to me like you had much of a dog in the fight. Like like if if you were I don't know, somehow to prove that, you know, humans are monogamous or not monogamous or whatever, like it doesn't impact the way that you live your life necessarily. Mm. And and I find it I find that criticism very strange when someone lobs that criticism at you. It's almost though they're they're clinging to their own beliefs. Like um we had we had um Eric Weinstein on the podcast recently. Phenomenal conversation. I know his brother is not a big fan of yours. And um I, what did I would, you do like did you sleep with his girlfriend or something? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think he and his wife were on Rogan, yeah. and they kind of trashed me. And I think he's the guy who said I wrote Sex at Dawn to get laid. Yeah, which yeah, struck yeah. me as like, dude, like right. that, that's like inventing a helicopter to clean your gutters. Like, right, yeah. that's a that's a long arduous trek to getting laid. Right. Yeah, it, the, the weird thing is, like, I, it, it, Brett, who is Eric's brother, is. I mean, probably as smart as Eric. I mean, Eric is maybe the smartest person I've ever met. Mm. Uh, first time we, we had lunch together. No I, offense, uh, doctor. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I showed up and he had... It I'm looked, the best looking person. <laughs> absolutely, <met>. yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I showed up, he had like hieroglyphics. It was just math equations on a, on a piece of paper. Um, and um, I'm like, oh, okay, this is going to be a difficult conversation. But I, I found that he was actually really amenable to having good dialogue disagreeing but not in a way that was like we were fighting and i think right. if i could make a recommendation i'd love to see you sit down with with eric uh, maybe on his podcast or your podcast and have a good conversation about this kind of stuff because you you might disagree about some stuff but i think you would probably agree on far far more than you disagree sure, about sure yeah yeah no i i uh I'm happy to talk with people who disagree with uh, the thesis of my books or, or whatever. I, I'm not super into talking to people who question my motives. Yeah. You know, you wrote the book in order to, you know, cover up your sick lifestyle or to get wow. laid or, you know, like there's no productive result that's going to come from that. They're not going to come out of it saying, actually, you know, what a nice guy. Like, it's not going to work. I've tried. It yeah. doesn't yeah. work. Um, because they're there to tear you down, not to actually have a meaningful conversation. Well, and, and I feel like, you know, you touched on this, Josh, like I feel like there you know, here I am questioning their motives, but I feel like a lot of times that kind of nasty personal stuff comes from them feeling threatened. Mm. Yeah. Right. And yeah. and so I, I don't want to get into that. Right. I don't want to say, okay, so how's your marriage? Mm. You know, are, right. why are you criticizing me? Why are you so vehement that I can't possibly have a point here? Uh, you know, there's nowhere to go in that kind of conversation. Yeah, yeah it's it's my great hope to bring people together who have radically different points of view. Like on this podcast, um, I don't know, six, eight months ago, Sean, maybe it was longer than that. We had Rich Roll and Paul Saladino on here. I don't know if you know who either one of them are. I think Rich Roll. I've okay, met, yeah. so he's yeah probably uh, the most well-known plant-based vegan athlete. Yeah. Like, 
and uh, Dr. Paul Saladino, he's a medical doctor, but he's a full carnivore, like doesn't oh, eat yeah. any plants. I know who he is too. Um, yeah. And carnivore we, we, MD. Yeah, yeah, yeah carnivore yeah. MD. And um, he, he and Rich, I brought them on to, okay, their Venn diagram of food literally doesn't touch, right? <laughs> yeah. like, uh, Rich eats no animals. Uh, Paul eats nothing but it. he eats no plants. And but eighty percent of their sort of ideology actually overlapped yeah. in, in incredible ways. And we agreed to not have a debate. We agreed to have conversations and figure out what do we actually agree on here. Right, right. And I thought it was a wildly productive conversation. And, and I think the same thing can happen. Like uh, two of my biggest influences are Sam Harris and Rob Bell. Rob Bell is a former megachurch pastor. Sam Harris is not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mega atheist. Right. But I think I think they actually have 90% the same values. Right. They just have radically different beliefs. And there's a huge, a huge value in, in conducting those sorts of conversations in an age where, you know, everyone's defining themselves as right. one side or the other. The tribalism. Yeah. To show that, no, there's, this, there's so much overlap. Right. I, I agree with you. You know that I like to have people on my podcast I don't agree with, like yeah. you know, yeah. uh, like I'm totally anti-war, but I have vets on all the time, mm -hmm. and sometimes I get shit from members of the audience. I see on Reddit some of these conversations, like, yeah, you didn't push back, you didn't like call him a murderer, which is what he is. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm not gonna call him a murderer because yeah. he's a nice guy, and right. I'm, and, and again, he's been sucked into this super organism, right? right? And so his hunger for belonging and and brotherhood and looking out for each other has been co-opted into going to Iraq and and shooting people he doesn't know. Right. I'm not blaming him for that. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. Um, I mean some yeah. some blame always lies on the individual, but there is a greater system in place that yeah. that um, normalizes and, and in fact promotes it, uh, very yeah. aggressively promotes I and mean, literally yeah. advertises yeah. Yeah. To, to, to kill yeah. people. Yeah. Before we wrap this up, I did want to talk about at least one other thing uh, that was in the book that really stood out to me, the happiness tax, um, where um, I, I guess in America in particular, because of the lifestyles we've set up, uh, having kids radically... Mm. Uh, ways on our happiness. It makes us unhappier in a way that maybe it doesn't in other societies. Well, yeah, and largely that's because in America, if you have kids, you're on your own. Good luck. Yeah. Uh, you know, you probably don't live in an extended family where the grandparents are, are nearby to help out. Uh, this, you know, you don't get, you, you might get, uh, what, a week or two weeks of maternity leave if you're lucky. Yeah. Uh, in France, it's th three to six months, I think. I think in Iceland, maybe it's a year. Yeah. yeah. And there's also paternity leave. Uh, -huh. uh There's uh, state-funded uh, prenatal care. Uh, you know, you're not on your own. You're part of a, a web of community that that helps with the parenting. Mm -hmm. And again, that relates right back to our hunter-gatherer past, where kids weren't your kid. It was the village. You know, it takes a village to raise a child, right? Um, it really does. And and so, you know, the kids are the, the sort of uh, responsibility for kids is dispersed. Kids refer to every woman as mother and every man as father, uh, even though they know biologically this woman's their mother. They might not know biologically who their father is. Right. Um, it doesn't really matter because just like the food is shared and healthcare is shared and you know everything is shared and it's not because they're better people it's because sharing is the best way to mitigate risk mm. and if you think about it if 
it's better for kids too. We know there are many psychological studies showing that kids who grow up with several different, a bunch of adults that they love and trust and feel protected by, that's a much healthier way to grow up psychologically yeah. than like, oh, I only have mom and dad. If they fight, if they have a divorce, then I only have one. Mm. Right? Mm. She dies, I'm on my own. I'm six. Mm. That's terrifying. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, you know, this, and also, you know, again, this, people aren't to blame for this. The society teaches weird things like put your kid in a room alone and let him cry himself to sleep. Mm. That's pretty strange when you think that's a little primate. What happened to little primates who are left alone at night? Mm. They didn't make it to no. morning. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a reason that kid's screaming because right. it's terrified. Yeah. You know? But yeah. we're told, no, no, dude, that's good for the kid. Yeah. Like, yeah trust us. <laughs> yeah. Really? Trust you? I don't know. <laughs> I, and again, I'm not blaming parents who've done this. I'm no, sure it's... my parents did it with me, but it's there's a lot of trauma that's built into modern life that we don't understand is actually trauma. Yeah. Mm. I think it's a perfect place to end it. Chris, I want to acknowledge you for, man, creating something really meaningful. Thank you. Not, and, not only are you the coolest doctor, but you're the sexiest doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being here, you, man. You've never seen House. <laughs> yeah, he just he just plays a doctor on TV, though. Uh, folks, I would enc Thanks. encourage you, if you're listening to this, uh, check out Chris Ryan's podcast. It's called Tangentially Speaking. Check yeah. out both of his books. His newest one is called Civilized to Death. His first book was called Sex at Dawn. And, uh, man, I think you're really doing some amazing stuff. I'm grateful to know you. Hey, Thank you so too. much yeah. for being here. Yeah. Good to know you guys. All right, <laughs> y'all. give you a hug, man. You guys. Yeah, we owe you a hug. All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you next time. Patrons, thank you so much for your support. See ya. Don Minimalists. <laughs>